0: Welcome, everybody, to the revolution. (laughs) Is that too dramatic? Should I I, I tone it down a little bit? Let me try it again. Hey, Sam and Jenny, nice to see you. Thanks for joining us tonight. Let me try this again. Welcome, everybody, to church. My name is Matt Mulberg. Thrilled that you are with us tonight. I will be your host for this portion of the program. If this is your first time here, uh, thrilled that you are with us. Uh, we are a new church plant and it, we are trying to make things work. We are trying to make, we're hanging screens upside down. I mean, we're doing what we can to hustle to get from point A to point B. And so if you are stepping into this renovation stage where we are finding our feet, God bless you for the courage. God bless you for the patience. We are happy that you are with us tonight. As that video alluded to, we are stepping into a new series tonight and we'll be in this series for the next two months called Traders and Coats. And the heart of this series is really that this is the reason why we planted this church. Really, it is. We desire to see a church community, a spiritual body, actually have social relevance, actually be able to speak into the hells outside and not just be always worrying about some kind of eternal hell that's coming people's way. There's a better story out there, and that's what we're trying to step into. And so, first and foremost, before we do anything else to the church community, when it comes to sermon content, sermon series, we wanted to step into this uh, theme first. And and to do so, I want to introduce you to an original trader in turncoat. Could you please put the next slide up? This is Mr. Henry David Thoreau. He was born on July 12th, 1817, twin brother of Ellen Lee DeGeneres. I mean, am I right? Look at those two. It's pretty wild, isn't it? Do what you can to not let that distract you. But that is Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau is a well-known peace activist, uh, among many other things. And and I'm not going to go into his entire biography right now, but I want to point out one story that has been, for whatever reason, on my mind this week. On July 23rd of 1846, Henry David Thoreau went into the town of Concord to find a fresh pair of sneakers, and he went into the cobbler shop. He looked up and down, he found the shoes that he liked, he walked them up to the counter, he took them to the cashier, and the cashier said, that's going to be X amount of dollars, but on top of that, you're also going to have to pay a poll tax. And Thoreau said, no, I'm not, I won't do that. For him, he was under the conviction that to pay the poll tax was to support the Mexican-American War, which then in in turn would have to be, that would be supporting the, the expansion of the institution of slavery into the Southwest. And so he refused to pay the poll tax sister ellen wasn't psyched about it because he ended up in jail that night and the story goes that as she was sitting in the slammer uh he had a mentor swing through and come and visit him that mentor was a man by the name of ralph Waldo emerson heard of him okay nobody wow we have a lot of work to do here <laughs> oh boy we're gonna have to extend this series by another couple months Ralph Waldo Emerson steps up to the jail. He sees Thoreau sitting on the bench. His eyes are on the ground. He is, he's got a pale face. He looks like he's a little dejected, maybe out of sorts. And Emerson leans into the bars, and he says, Henry, what are you doing in here? To which Thoreau stood to his feet. He raised his eyes off of the floor. He looked into Emerson's, and he says, Ralph, what are you doing out there. What are you doing out there? I I tell you that story at the beginning of this thing because in my community of friends who are out there fighting for a better world, a more just world, and are ending up in in either people's judgment or in jail because of it, one of the most, uh, one of the questions that that tends to be redundant almost because I hear it so often is when people are asking them, why are you so mixed up in all of this? They want to know why you aren't. And more often than not, that question is directly aimed at the church. A lot of these friends, uh, they would not not introduce themselves to you as Christians. Not because they aren't inspired by the, the reality of the liberating King Jesus, but because they are so uninspired by the neutrality of the neutered church that bears his name. Who he was and who we are, they often do not look like one and the same. And so there is a contrast that ends up being confusing. And so instead of being complicit in something like that, they'd rather just bow out and have nothing to do with it altogether. Because they cannot, for the life of them, understand how they can read a story like Jesus's and see us standing outside of the jail cell, next to Emerson, and not next to Thoreau. What are you doing out here? I guess in some ways that's that's kind of what we're, you know, setting out to answer in this series. And I suppose to start to answer that question, maybe a fair way to approach it would be to ask, "What is the purpose of the church altogether? Why are we in this room?" It is a cold, rainy night. The Vikings are already lost. Like we have no business being happy today, and yet we're gathering all the same. Why? Why are we doing this? When I've asked people that in the past, or I've had pastors preach that to me, I've been told, uh, "We gather." to tell and be told that old story of Jesus dying for our sins. That's not a bad reason to gather. In fact, I would advocate that that is a great reason to gather. We should continue to come together as a people, be re-rooted in that story, remind one another of that truth of what it is that Jesus died for, as long as we also tell the story of what it is that Jesus was killed for. Because what Jesus died for and what he was killed for, well, those are two very different things. Friends, you probably don't need me to tell you this, but Jesus did not die in old age. Jesus was not blindsided by some drunk on a horse. Jesus did not transition out of hospice care. Jesus was executed by an empire who viewed him as a real and viable threat to Roman interests in an occupied land. Jesus wasn't killed because he walked on water or he told us to love our enemies. Jesus was killed because he was the enemy. Jesus was legally lynched as the enemy of state, because in the eyes of the empire, the government, the powers that be, they viewed him as a very real religious, economic, social, and political threat to the order of the day. And for the life of me, I cannot figure out how we got so far away from that story to where we are today. Because Jesus, he was the enemy of the Satan, we often live as the endorsement of the Satan. Jesus was the Empire's agitators. We tend to be Caesar's advertisement. There is a gap between who He was and where we are. Am I right? And so how do we find our way forward? In this series, over the next two months, we want to actually kind of uncover some of the practices that Jesus put into play. Different ways that he embodied a holy resistance. Something that said there's a better way than power down, militarized version of life. There's a better way to actually love neighbors and the poor. And so we want to uncover those practices. Tonight, though, I don't want to do that quite yet. Prior to getting us into all the practices that we're going to be getting into, tonight I want to spend some time looking at what preceded each of Jesus' practices. And if you would, go to Mark 11. There's a text in there that I want to look at. Mark 11, verses 11 through about 18. And it reads like this. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since he was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for the figs. Then he said to the tree, and nobody eat of you again. His disciples, they heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise to the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, did I not tell you, is it not written, that my house would be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned around and made it into a den of robbers. When I was in middle school, I went to church on, on the regular, I would say. Mom, attest to that. Where is she? My mom's not here. Okay, great. She would if she were. She would tell you that I was there. My attendance was off the marks. You're right there. Okay, right in front of me, actually. Absolutely blinded right now, by this light. It's okay. My attendance was off the marks. And in my youth group, one of the reasons I think that I was actually so motivated to attend was there was a girl named Amanda that at one point for about a week and a half, I was head over heels in love with. So in love with, in fact, true story that I once changed the entire words of an Usher song to fit Amanda's name in there and then proceeded to sing her. Sing it to her. I did. It wasn't weird. It was the 90s. This is the kind of things that we did back in the day. And it seemed to work. And so one Sunday morning that I remembered as I was looking at this text, um, I had a memory of Amanda and I sitting in the back of the youth group room, and we were, you know, what do lovers do? They giggle, they gossip, they a little this, look at that. While the preacher man in the front of the room was giving some kind of pep talk. He wasn't as, like, entertained by our, we were having fun. But he comes up to me immediately afterwards. And I'm going to butcher a little bit what he says. And something to the fact that it's like, Matt, you need to stop distracting people from uh, their church experience. And then he went even so far as to say, Matt, don't you know that you are keeping Amanda from the good news when you do this. To which I said, sir, you have nothing to worry about. The best news is sitting next to her right now. You can rest assured all as well. He disagreed. Um, And, um, you know, since that time, actually, I've heard that interpretation, though, of that text play out again and again. Jesus is not psyched because you should have eyes forward on the pulpit. Not on your phone. Jesus is not happy because you should have your hands raised when Hillsong is playing and not checking fantasy. Jesus is not happy because the temple is being defiled by distractions. You're pulling people away from the religious work required of this moment. The other interpretation, if not that one, that I've heard even more recently is I heard a preacher once say that this is the most definitive text out there that shows you that despite all the nonviolent talk about Jesus... Here he is flipping over tables. Here he is throwing bird baskets on the ground and letting doves go free. I heard a preacher say that this is Christianity's official green light when war is justified. As if turning over tables in Hiroshima are one and the same thing. These are the two dominant interpretations that we have inherited of this text. And I'd like to submit to you tonight, there's a better way to read this story. Because it's an important story. All four Gospels talk about this story. This story does have weight, it does matter, and there's a better read than those two options that we've been provided with. And I'd like to you know, show you how I got to where I'm going tonight. First, let me give you a little context so it'll help clarify the content. At the time of Jesus, the Israelites, who Jesus is one of them, they were a people who were oppressed and they were living in a land that was occupied. They were living in a militarized reality where the Romans had their foot on their neck at all times and they were incarcerated in poverty. How? Let me explain. They had a tithe that they had to give to the temple every year, they had taxes that they had to pay to their priests, and they had to cough up a tribute to Rome. 40% of their annual income, of an already poor people's annual income, went to the Empire. And they kept finding more and more creative ways of exploiting the poor as they went along. The people of Israel, they had no legal rights, they had no representation, they had no voice in the creation of laws justice was never theirs. And in many ways, if you actually start to size up, as historians are doing now, they would look at these people who, yes, they did not have any shackles on their feet, but you could call them slaves. They were living in such a systemic, or underneath such systemic oppression, that it was a form of slavery. That's when you read the people in Jesus' story, when you read the people in Jesus in this temple moment right here, it's a gathering of slaves, of oppressed poor people. And that's important to know. Because does anybody know in here why these people were gathering in Jerusalem at all? If so, yell it out right now. Again, lots, so much work we need to do together. We're in this though, together. The people, the oppressed poor people, are there in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Jesus journeys into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Why does that matter? Well, that's actually a very important note when we consider this story, because the Passover is the celebration of that one time in these people's history when slaves walked free. The Passover is the political story that these people's story is rooted in, of that moment where God heard the cries of the slaves of the oppressed, stepped down and intervened, parted the sea, escorted the slaves safely across, and then drowned the empire in their wake. So consider the implications of gathering a party like this with oppressed people to celebrate something like that. Passover is dangerous. It's out of a place like Jerusalem in a moment like this. It is very dangerous whenever slaves start celebrating a freedom that you won't provide them with. Especially when the place of that party is in the center of your power. Which is exactly what the temple was at this time. When we think of the temple, we tend to think of this, more or less. Praise and worship, church, preaching upside-down screens, that kind of sort of thing. But at this time for Jesus, the temple was the center of uh, economic, political, religious, social power. In fact, it wasn't even known in the land as like a religious, spiritual experience was going down there. It tended to be the place where uh, armies were formed, military plans were drawn up, politics came to the front of things. This is If, you, if there's an empire, which there is, this is where it was the heart of it was. This is Wall Street. This is the Pentagon, balled up in one. So Jesus steps up onto that scene to celebrate freedom with a bunch of slaves in the heart of an empire who won't give them what they're trying to get. Can you imagine how volatile that moment would be? So even with that basic you know, backdrop in mind, walk through this story one more time. Jesus wakes up and he's feeling something funny. Grabs his guys, they go to church. Steps into the church, and when you read the text in Mark, as it was written out, Mark wants you to feel like the immediacy of it. He steps in and he starts driving people out. It says Jesus arrived at the temple and then he started flipping over tables. One table, another table, boom, bang. He grabs bird cages, breaks them over his knees. These birds are flying everywhere, coins all over the place. Jesus then, as some gospel writers will say it, Mark doesn't. Other gospel writers will say that Jesus not only was breaking, you know, cages and flipping tables. Jesus was packing heat that day. Jesus walked in with a hand, like a homemade whip, starts cracking it, driving people out of the temple. People are scattering to and fro. Everybody is running like wild because this one man is going to town on people. And he's driving people out of church and he's yelling things. I just think the gospel writers were like, maybe we don't need to record everything he said. Like, maybe we just put the pen down for this moment. And all they do record is that one moment in Jesus at the end of it where it says, is it not written? Is it not written that my house would be called a house of prayer for all nations? And she have made it into a den of robbers. That Greek word there for den It is spelayam, and it means a resort, a hiding space. Jesus says that there are people who are doing dirty work here, crooked and corrupt. And it's become so normal that it's become unnoticeable. Thievery is frowned upon, you know, all over the world. But inside the temple, you're good. It's safe here. It's a den here for thieves to do their thieving. That's how crooked it has become Jesus is saying that somebody here is stealing something from somebody. Now, I suppose you can make the argument like my youth pastor did that people are stealing the church experience from others. They're us. But is there something else going on that would be a little bit more clear? Well, it's interesting that in Mark. He could have told this story and just, like I said, gone in there. He said Jesus stepped into the scene and he started flipping over tables one after another. That could have been the story that would have made the records. That's worth telling again and again. But Mark goes a step further. Mark names two of the tables that were flipped over. He says the money changers table and the dove dealers. Why does he go through that work of naming those particular tables? The money changers and the dove dealers. Well, first, the money changers were part of the priest's ploy. The priest, they knew that people, when they came to the temple for Passover, they had a need to give a tribute to Rome, a tax to the temple, and a tithe to the priest. They knew they had to do these things. These are important pieces of gold, And so they had to give cash. So they thought, okay, well, how can we, you know, yes, we'll take their cash, obviously, gladly, we'll welcome it warmly. But how can we make a pretty penny off of what we're already going to profit and so they, people would come up then with Jewish cash and she- shekels in their pockets, and the priest would look at them through the eyes of the money changers, and they would say, uh, God does not accept credit cards with Caesar's face on it. You need to change that money in for some roaming coins instead. Obviously, this exchange rate was not one-to-one. Inflation was, was absurd. And so through this, then, you know, by most upper-class, middle-class, wealthy people... They weren't obviously psyched about the exchange rate being as crooked as it was, but it was what it was. You can live with that. You can survive. We can bite that bitter pill and move on and keep going forward. But if you were poor, if you were poor to pay that price, you just could not make that happen. You couldn't also pay that interest rate. And so what you'd have to end up doing then is you'd have to take out a loan from the priest so that you could pay the priest. And so they would take this loan, end up they would not be able to pay that loan off. This is why historic records now show that so many of the priests had all this land all over the country. Because when poor people couldn't actually pay off the interest that they were told they were, that they had to pay, the priests would confiscate the land. And then they would start taking their cattle. And they would start taking their resources. The money changes is a place where uh, extreme exploitation is happening so jesus slips it over then jesus goes over to the dove dealers so pilgrims who are coming into jerusalem they not only had to meet the requirements for what kind of cash you were going to give you also had to meet the requirements for what kind of blood was going to be spilled at this time this is pre-peta and so the idea was that you had to bring an animal to sacrifice because that's how you get right with god now, for most people, they're traveling from hundreds of miles away. And so if you have to bring an animal, you also have to keep that animal blemish-free, which is nearly impossible, especially if you don't have a lot of money. So what the temple does then is they say, well, okay, we'll, we'll meet you where you're at. We see the issue at hand. We'll accommodate you. We'll sell you an animal on the spot. Again, middle class, upper class, around there, you would buy a cow or an oxen. Those are legit sacrifices. That's what you would do. But Jesus isn't flipping over cow tables. He's not flipping over oxen tables. Jesus flips over the tables of the dove dealers. The doves were the sacrificial animal that were reserved just for the poor. For a poor person who has traveled hundreds of miles, tired, dejected, spent all of their money on the resources that brought them from here to there, to have to buy two sets of doves that would cost them a day's wages. But not only that. Because the doves were more unique, what the priests would do is they would say, well, those doves, we never really know if they are fully blemish-free, and so we're going to have an inspection afterwards. And then the people would buy their doves, they'd walk them through the inspection. If they found a blemish inside of that, they would send them back, not to get a refund, but to buy two more doves. Exploitation of the poor. Right here, you have Wall Street. And just like the one in New York City, there are wolves hungry. So Jesus sees this scene, and he loses it. He goes off. He shuts church down right on the spot. And what I think is crazy when you think about this, and actually what I would submit to you is one of the reasons why Jesus went, got so angry, is that at Jerusalem at this time, scholars believe that 2.7 million people were passing through for the sake of celebrating Passover. million people were witnessing this happening, and nobody seemed too rattled by it. To 2.7 million people, this is standard economics. But to Jesus, this is satanic exploitation. To 2.7 million people, this is just business as usual, but to Jesus, this is brutality at its worst. 2.7 million people are there minding their own business And Jesus shuts the church down. He will not passively perpetuate the evil of empire by staying silent on the sidelines. Immediately, as Mark makes clear, he sees the exploitation of the poor and he does something. He disrupts the Passover party by destructing some Passover property because in Jesus' mind, he is far more concerned with the desecration of people than he is with the desecration of a place. Jesus intervenes immediately, and then he says, you have turned this party and this place into a safe haven, a den, for the rich to continue to profit off of the poor. In other words, you are celebrating freedom while feeding slavery. Jesus says, Egypt, Egypt can never hold an exodus party. That's not how this is supposed to work. At the top of your Bibles, if you if you're reading along in your own in the pew, there, it might have a heading of a story like this, saying, "This is when Jesus cleansed the temple." Which is unfortunate because, from my vantage point, there's a lot of cleaning still to do. Well, it's true that we don't have money changers outside of our doors, not that I'm aware of at least, or dove dealers in the parking lot. And we are not getting together just to strategically talk about how we might exploit the poor. There are still people who show up at the house of God who have had more taken from them than has been poured into them. There are still people who show up at church and are prayed on instead of prayed for. There are still people who see an all or welcome sign on the outside of a building only to step inside and find out that, that that's just not true. You don't fit the criteria of that at all. We still have some cleaning to do. And the reason why I think we're so slow to notice this is because we don't move slowly enough to recognize what is happening all around us. Now, you might say, well, Matt, Jesus didn't really look. You were just talking about the boom-boom nature, how he walks in and he drives people out, how mark is very clear, it's a very quick thing. That's true. He did go boom-boom. It was an immediate thing, but that was on the second day he went to the temple. You see, we often, when we tell this story, it's Jesus steps into town, he has his triumphal entry, and he goes to church and he reacts and he's upset, but that is not the story that we just read at the beginning of this text. Mark 11:11 11, 11 says this that Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. He looked around at everything. and then he went home. Jesus went to the temple and he looked around at everything. And then he goes home with the 12, with his tribe, and eats some food, gets some sleep. They process all that they have perceived. They talk through what they noticed at the temple that day. I guarantee you that Jesus was just as angry that first day as he was that second day, but he was mature enough to recognize that your anger has to speak to you before it can just speak for you. Healthy resistance to empire is rooted in our ability to get angry, but then not to react. To go home, get some food, talk it out, and learn how to respond. Healthy resistance to empire comes out of people who know how to respond and not merely react. But it starts with doing what Jesus did He shows up where people are, He goes to the party. He looks and he sees everything. He doesn't just notice who is making a profit. He's taking note of who is having to pay the price. Jesus wasn't just happy that people were going to church. He allowed himself to get angry about the kind of church that was getting into people. And he's welled up with all of these emotions and Honestly, in the culture that we are in right now, in the society we are in right now, with all the outrageous things that are happening at the hands of empire upon innocent and often poor people, it is very easy to get fired up and to react. It is very easy to go and try to do something, fix something, say something, be something immediately without ever first going back to Bethany with your tribe, talking it through, and learning how to move beyond the reaction into a response. But preceding all of our practices has to be this as a community. We need to be people who know how to respond and not merely react. And I think that part of that means we need permission to be angry. I, I don't know if you guys have gotten this before, but I've gotten it before, at least from a pulpit or two, is that there is some kind of lie inside of the Christian church where like, being angry is not very Christ-like. The red mark 11. Because it actually is very core to being Christ-like the longer that we start paying attention to different realities inside of our world. And we start to ask questions about what we are seeing. Because that's the role of price. We don't just accept when the government gives $700 billion to military spending. We ask questions about why teachers are still underpaid. Why students are drowning in debt. It's a both and. You see, but then you interrogate. That's how we expand our conversations. We look and then we, we integrate into our lives. It's not enough for us just to talk about praise and worship. We also have to talk about poverty and welfare. We can't talk just about and look just at how Jesus heals people without talking about how healthcare is affecting our neighbors. There's an integration between the world and the word that has to happen and only happen if Jesus starts looking around and seeing everything and we join him in that work. We go back, though, to Bethany, to learn how to respond so we do not merely react. And when we do, we will get angry. And anger in a response is a healthy energy. Anger in a reaction is not. Understand this about Jesus, and then I will close because I'm going alone. long. You are called to be compassionate, kind, humble, and mercy, just like Christ was. To the lambs, to the sheep, Jesus was the shepherd. He was the protector. He was their caretaker. He was their provider. He was the one who had their back. But to the wolves, he was a hunter. That's why he became the hunted. To the wolves, he was fire and fury. To the wolves, he made some moves to step back. There is a place to get angry, but be mature about our anger. As we go into these practices in this series, I want us to remember that that we're not just reacting with trendy moves, with trendy statements, we're not just doing we're actually thinking through like adults. With a maturity that is gonna be not only honoring of our neighboring neighbor, but honoring of God as well. Amen? Amen. Debbie floor is yours.